Um, so we are closing out today our series on, um, that we're calling Faithing It, which is about faith, um, but not just as like a belief system, but as a new way of being human in the world. So a living faith that's constituted by these practices that we do with our bodies that directly impact our souls and that of people around us and even just the whole world. And we often group these, I like to group them in pairs that sort of work together or sometimes balance each other out. Um, so like Sabbath and tithing, peacemaking and solidarity, weekly worship and daily prayer. And today our pair is community and solitude. And at Redemption, we talk about this idea a lot, that the story of God is rooted in this hope of shalom. I mean, that's like the basis of the whole idea. Not Shalom is, is Hebrew for peace, and it, it's not just like peace as in lack of war. It's everything in its rightful place, doing what it's intended to do, um, relating rightly to everything else, and thereby all of it flourishing and finding wholeness. That's, that's Shalom. But this... Um, this hope of shalom is not inevitable. In fact, in, in the creation stories, there's these twin threats of chaos and barrenness that, that threaten shalom. And um, humanity is created as God's image-bearing creatures to try to nurture and steward creation toward peace. And in essence, what, what God is always saying to humanity is, be exist like I want you to be in the world to exist as yourself without shame or fear and not just be be at peace find this kind of wholeness and flourishing and the story of God tells us that um, humanity can actually do this because we live with this connection to God um, we have this capacity for language for meaning making we have self-awareness. You know, humans have a sense of our own soul and of the soul's connection to God, right? I mean, this is part of what it means to be human. And yet, at the same time, the, our story, thank heavens, I think, acknowledges that maintaining the soul's connection with God is sometimes a real problem for us. Again, in just in the origin story of Adam and Eve breaking fellowship with God, and because of that lost connection all of their, their relationships go haywire. They start hiding from God and blaming each other, feeling shame in themselves. Even their relationship to creation is, is strained. And so this disconnection results in estrangement from, from God and self and other and creation. It just warps all human relationships in, in every direction. And in essence, humans have been making a mess of the world ever since. And this is part of the human condition for all of us. Like no matter how well put together we seem to be, how confident or successful we are, to be human is to live with a kind of disconnection from the self. I mean, it's a cliche, right? We're strangers to ourselves. We you don't know ourselves very well. And in a lot of ways, we don't want to. And we're, we're blind to our own motivations and fears and anger and shame and desires. And, and so we're searching. Um, Frederick Buechner, one of my favorite um, authors, he says, we're always searching for a self to be. I think that's interesting. I think he's right. 
Because to be human is to be estranged from the self. It's also to experience a disconnection from God. To, to wonder if God is real, if God is there, if God is um, angry and vindictive or, or loving and watching and sustaining us, that God will never leave us or forsake us. And to be human is to experience a disconnection from each other. And so to live with this deep longing to connect, to love and be loved and to be safe. And to be human is to experience a struggle with nature, creation itself. All these disconnections is part of what it means to be human. We're disconnected in four directions. And these disconnections make us really restless. They fill us with desire to reconnect and they sort of in a way fire us out into the world which is really good but sometimes they fire us with so much velocity that we start crashing into each other and hurting each other we crash into you know one another into ourselves into god into creation and this causes all kinds of problems in the world is that does that ring true are you with me so far and Repairing, um, repairing these breaches is really kind of the heart of what God is doing in the world. And so really nothing could be more important than, than this pursuit, reconnecting the soul to self, to other, to God, to creation. And this is what God is all about. But, you know, the, you knew there was a but, um, this, uh, God is not the only one working on this project. You could say it that way. God is not the only one working on this. And most of our world, the kingdoms of, of, of this world, are constructed to exploit those disconnects and to use them for power and security and wealth and, and pleasure or, you know, all kinds of things. And so this, this reconciliation project is not a, a sure thing. In fact, it's a very rare thing to find somewhat, someone who's really grounded in a deep connection to God and self and other and, and world. And there's a sense in which we sometimes use the word uh, Christian spirituality, the sense in which what that means is just learning a set of stories and practices that can cultivate kind of a new imagination and a new way of being that will just naturally reconnect these disconnected or fractured relationships. And, and it, honestly, that's my definition of Christian spirituality. It's a set of stories and practices that can shape our imagination and, and our, our, um, our way of being so that we just naturally begin to reintegrate those relationships. And over the past 20 years at Redemption, we, we found kind of the, the most helpful conversation partner in this is what's called the contemplative tradition sometimes um, that kind of accomplishes this reconnection through contemplative practices just like the ones that we're highlighting in this series. And I, I really think contemplative practices are essential if we want to become fully human. And the problem with this is we don't, we don't live in a contemplative society. We live in a frenetic society, constantly pushing us toward bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster things, pushing us toward individualism, consumerism, and nationalism. And there's this sense in which 
Christians are called to be contemplatives in the midst of a frenetic society. And it's really hard to do. It's really rare. And really the only way to do it is to be committed to particular practices. I mean, if we just allow the, the liturgies and practices of the culture to shape us, we'll just end up chasing bigger, better, higher, stronger, faster, that stuff. We need new practices that, that are meant to reconnect us in all those directions. And, and so to become more fully human. But here's the thing. It's kind of a strange twist, but I think it's true. Um, you don't have to do this. Like, you can still be Christian and not do contemplative practices. I mean, this isn't about earning salvation. It's not compelled under threat of hell. The contemplative tradition, it's rooted in the teachings of Christ, who was really against, he fought legalism of any kind. So this isn't about placating God or earning God's favor or even engineering, like, the, the perfect life. The contemplative tradition is just about engaging this set of stories and practices that rhythmically over time reconnect us to God and to self and other in the world. And in so doing, bring us back to life and help us to become what we were meant to be in the very beginning, agents of shalom in the world. But we don't have to do this. We don't have to engage them. We're free to live however we want. Um, One of my favorite contemplative writers, Annie Dillard, she says, that contemplative practices, she says, are like, they're kind of like the stars at night. Like they, they, they don't care if you go outside and sit in the dark and look at them. They shine either way, day or night. But if you want to see the stars, you'll need to do some particular things. You have to go out late at night, far from the city, and sit in the dark and stare at the sky. She writes, I read this, I try to read this at least once a year to redemption, this little passage. She says, God does not demand that we give up our personal dignity, that we throw in our lot with random people, that we lose ourselves and turn from all that is not him. God needs nothing, asks nothing, demands nothing like the stars. It is a life with God which demands these things. Experience, she said, has taught us, the ra- it taught the race that if knowledge of God is the end, then these habits of life, these contemplative practices, are not the means to that end, but are the condition in which the means operates. God's the, God's the means. These are the condition of possibility. She says, you do not have to do these things, not at all. God does not, I regret to report, give a hoot. You do not have to do these things unless you want to know God. They work on you, not on him. You do not have to sit outside in the dark. If, however, you want to look at the stars, you will find that darkness is necessary. But the stars neither require it nor demand it. I mean, this is, I just think, one of the most accurate things I've ever read about Christian spirituality contemplative practices are not required by God unless you want to see God. And then you'll find they're required. If you want a soul that is reconnected to self and God and other in the world, these practices, she says, are the condition of possibility. And so they're really important if that's what we want. 
and they're really important because we don't live in a contemplative society. And at Redemption Church, we're really trying to be a community that fosters an intentional engagement with the contemplative tradition. And that's the whole reason why we did this series for five weeks. Um, One of the great writers in that tradition is a guy named Parker Palmer. Anybody read any Parker Palmer? Anybody? Yeah. Okay, lots. Lots of folks. So he's great. He's this... He's a Quaker and a really good writer. And um, he has these two statements about the human soul that I want us to look at together. I think these are fascinating. The first statement is this. He says, the soul is like a wild animal. Just think about this. The soul is like a wild animal. And he explains it like this. He says, it's tough and resilient and savvy and self-sufficient and yet exceedingly shy. He writes, if we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge. And out of the corner of an eye, we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. It's a pretty good metaphor. The soul it's like a wild animal. It's tough and it's, it's smart and, and savvy, but it's super shy. And so if we want the soul to show up so we can reconnect, we're going to have to learn how to be still. We're going to have to learn solitude. And this is just part of how we connect to our own souls is through practices of solitude and silence. So that's, that's Palmer's first saying. The second one feels like opposed, but it it goes together. He says, the soul needs a witness. The soul often has to be drawn out of hiding by the presence of another image-bearing creature. It's like in Genesis when God creates Adam alone and says, this isn't good. It's not until there's another like him facing him as, as an equal that God says, this is good. This is very good. Palmer writes, um, the human soul doesn't want to be advised. Anybody feel that one? Doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed, to be seen, heard, and companioned exactly as it is. And we're really good at hiding the self. And so it really does take the presence of another. It takes community to draw the soul out of, out of hiding, help us see ourselves as we are in all of our woundedness and, and weirdness. And I think, look at these, I, mean, I think these two statements are both true and really powerful. And it's interesting, when they're held together, they actually lead us to our two practices. So the soul is a wild animal and needs you know, quiet to, to come out, leads us to the practice of solitude. And that the soul needs a witness leads to the practice of community. And both are true at the same time, and both kind of work off of each other. There's another contemplative writer. I'm going to mention a bunch of them this morning, all of whom I would recommend reading. Um, Another contemplative writer, Henry Nouwen. Anybody read Henry Nouwen? Anything? Even more. That's awesome. So he says, he thinks Christian maturity begins with solitude. Full stop. But he said, nobody wants to do it. Because the minute we try some kind of silence or solitude, we're usually overwhelmed by our own sense of loneliness. 
And, and he, he, this is what he writes. He says, the movement then from loneliness to solitude, he says, is the beginning of any spiritual life. Solitude for him is that foundational. And the, the problem is we're just so stinking lonely as a society. The moment we try any kind of solitude, we're often just overwhelmed by the pain of, of loneliness. It's one of our most critical issues in our society. We lack deep connections to each other, and solitude makes it obvious, and so we, we run from it. And this is part of why Solitude and community have to be linked in our practice. It's only when we have these deep connections to other people that we can find the courage to actually go sit with ourselves and let the soul emerge. And now it says that spiritual life just begins with that shift from loneliness to solitude. If you think about it, like not to put too fine a point on it, but like loneliness is a sense of inner emptiness that makes us feel sad and afraid. Whereas solitude is a sense of inner fullness that makes us calm and brave. From the outside, loneliness and solitude look exactly the same for, to the outside observer. But on the inside, they're just completely different things. Loneliness is this emptiness that makes us anxious and makes us run. Whereas solitude is this inner fullness we experience that makes us calm and brave and still and, and honestly powerful. But that inner emptiness, man, it, it's that, that fear that we're not worthy of our relationships, of deep connection and belonging, that we're so broken, everyone will end up leaving us eventually and we'll be alone. It's just a brutal inner experience and almost every human person experiences it. And solitude is meant to be this practice that, um, that gives us the ability to um, be alone without that fear, without that inner emptiness. And it's made possible by this inner fullness that mostly comes from relationships. And I don't mean, when I say inner fullness, like, I don't mean like, sometimes you'll hear spiritual writers, even some of these guys talk about it, it sort of bothers me. This idea of like the true self, like there's a true self somewhere in there. If you could just discover it, it's fine. It's, it's, un, it's not flawed or broken. I, I really don't buy that. I think the true, the inner fullness knows the brokenness goes all the way down. But it's not a problem because it's this point of contact between us and God because God runs toward brokenness to heal the brokenhearted. This inner fullness just knows um, brokenness and lack. It's just part of, it's part of the fullness of what it means to be human. And it's not a problem because God rushes toward it. And a big part of what even makes um, solitude possible is community. You know, someone to love us and help us feel safe so we can practice solitude and, and begin to trust and discover this inner fullness. And solitude's kind of weird. It's, I used to think you had to be, like, completely alone. But now, and especially talks about it, he's like, it can happen in a room full of people. All it requires is that we be silent and, and mindful and present. Um, and not for nothing, 
that like in a world that can't stop talking, the, the ability to be silent and still and quiet is honestly a sign of, of bearing, of like deep spiritual power and bearing. We're just so, so loud and restless and running from ourselves that we've created this culture of busyness, busyness, busyness. And if you don't believe me, hang around young people a while because they are collateral damage in this. And they're pissed about it. We're just so afraid and lonely and not good at this. And so we've created a culture that just runs. It just runs. And that kind of restlessness, man, it's a, it's a sign of vacancy, of a lack of spirituality and depth. Solitude, though, man, solitude is a sign of spiritual weight and, and power. Still waters run deep, right? That's this, that's this idea. And um, a big part of solitude is silence. Silence is hard for me, like, even though I, sp- I, I spend a lot of time in silence, but I think it's because I, I know how much I need it. And we often think of silence as the lack of sound, but silence is more, more than just like the space between sounds. It has its own substance and, and force. There's this writer, um, Ian Cron, I heard him once say that noise or sounds are like gnats on the back of a rhino. Silence is the rhino. That's what he says. Silence has its own weight and force and life and power. And silence and solitude go hand in hand. And when we engage in them, they begin to really reconnect us to God and to self, and especially to parts of the self we have disavowed. In the scripture, there's this famous story we read earlier about Elijah the prophet. He had this conflict with Ahab the king and Jezebel his wife. She had married him for his money and then used him to kind of pay for her prophets and her religion of Baal and Asherah worship. And Elijah moved against him. Remember, there's that big showdown between the prophets and the gods, and he, like, makes fun of her and then kills all her prophets, and she gets mad, swears to kill him. He has to run off and hide in a cave, which, by the way, seems to happen a lot in the story of God. Remember uh, Abraham's his cousin Lot ends up hiding in a cave? after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Saul hid his armies in a cave. David hid from Saul in a cave. Obadiah hid the prophets of God in caves. Moses hid in a cave while God passed by. And Elijah here is on the run, finds himself where a lot of people find themselves, in a cave. When the word of, the, word of Yahweh came to him saying, what are you doing here, Elijah? Did you notice that when we read it earlier? I just love this part. And it's hard to be a prophet. It's like a lonely job, Elijah, they're all of them. They're always running for their lives, isolated, longing for God to speak, you know? And then when God finally speaks, it's like, what are you doing here, man? Like, and this is how it, I think, generally seems to go. God's like, what are you doing out here? This is not your life. This is not your place. 
And he replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord. He's given his bona fides, right? So um, the Israelites, it says, have rejected your covenant and torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. So this is like a confession of loneliness. I'm the only one. And of course, we've, you know, we've all been in that place where we feel lonely and we cave up and start asking questions. And I think what the story just teaches is this, is this is what solitude looks like. And this is what begins to reconnect the soul to God and self. And it can happen any place we're willing to just be still and let the soul emerge. And it will emerge often in the form of these nagging questions that we don't really want to hear. And if we'll sit with them, you know, God's presence will begin to appear and, and we'll begin to recognize it. And then those questions, you know, why are you here? It's, he asked it twice in this short passage. These help us learn who we are. I'm one of, um, uh, Saint, uh, uh, the one with the, Saint Francis, the one with the animals, you know, he spent a lot of time in nature in solitude and he had this one prayer he loved to pray all the time in solitude. He would say, who are you, O God, and who am I? He would just say this over and over. Who are you, O God, and who am I? That's his solitude prayer. The very next thing that happens is God says, okay, let's go. He moves Elijah to the edge of this hill, and he says, I'm going to pass by you. So look out. Here it comes. And then there's this big earthquake, but God's not in the earthquake. And this big, you know, fire, right? And no God in that. And then after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. So this is a sign of reverence for the mystics. And went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. So he stands finally in the presence of God and knows it as God. The Hebrew word for whisper here, it's kind of funny. Um, if, you, if you ever want to have fun, go read the schol- um, Hebrew scholars fight about the meaning of this word. It's, it's pretty great. It's like a nerd fight. Um, and none of them, most of them will just say, we, wrote, we don't really know what this means. We just know that the, the language has a connotation of negation. Um, the, if you have an NR, NRSD Bible, it um, translates it, this word, the sound of sheer silence. The sound of something not making a sound. And, and after, when, that, when that happens, after the sound and the fury, there's the sound of something not making a sound. And this is the condition of possibility for God to appear. And it also becomes somehow the way Elijah can recognize it in God, as God and stand, not be, not be destroyed. And this is really what solitude is all about. It's just, it's the courage to stand in the mouth of our caves and let the noise subside and trust that God's presence is with us and that we can stand in it. And and this silence has its own power to teach us um, who we are and who God is. And it's mostly how God comes to us. Um, Another great mystic, Thomas Merton, he says that silence is the first language of God. All else is poor translation. 
And so if God's first language is silence, then our constant talking really isn't helping. And if we want to reconnect the soul to God, we're going to need silence and solitude. And this practice of solitude is made possible by community, right? Having friends who can make us feel loved and brave, who can draw us out of hiding. I mean, very often, the journey to the self comes through the other. Like when I am, when I am struggling to know myself or to believe in myself, you know, like myself, I, I will kind of follow Kristen around the house like a puppy dog, right? Like shoving the dog out of the way to try to get some attention because I need somebody to, see, to, um, to draw me out because the soul needs a witness. We only come to know the self in relationship to other most of the time. And not just any relationship, you know. It has to be relationships that promise not to abuse, not to traumatize, not to exploit or use each other, but just to offer unconditional love that's just like a wash in grace and forgiveness. This, this draws us out of hiding. And we can see ourselves and let ourselves be seen. And, and it's pretty rare in our world because it's just vulnerable. Not only does the journey to self come through the other, but the journey to God very often comes through the other. Who carries the spirit of God, right? As image-bearing creatures. We're all visible evidence of the invisible God. It's just how, how God made us. The primary way we, we find a connection to God um, is first through community. And this is very often, um, you know, solid, deep communities. Very often the only thing that gives us the, the courage to go into solitude and, and find a deeper connection to God. If you think about it, much of Christ's teaching and ministry was about instructing and modeling for them the kind of relationships that are required to draw the soul out of hiding. Because the soul is a wild animal and the soul needs a witness. And over time, these kind of practices, man, they have a dramatic impact on the soul. The example that I like to, to use is what I'll, I'll leave us with today. It's, it's the difference between a windmill and a lighthouse in, um, when the storm comes. So when the winds are wailing, the windmill has one move, right? It's just a spin. And the faster the winds, the more it spins. And the, the harsher the storm eventually, the more it, the wind blows, the faster it spins, and it will spiral and spiral even out of control and, and eventually break apart and disintegrate. But the lighthouse... Um, has been constructed differently. And I'm using the analogy of a soul, of a person whose practices and habits and rhythms end up constructing who will become in the future. The windmill's it's constructed in a way that allows it to withstand any kind of storm. I love um, these pictures, a ton of them online, you can Google it and, you know, lose an hour of your week like I did this week looking at these because they're really just pretty incredible. Um, these lighthouses built on crazy 
shorelines and coasts where the waves get really, really big. These massive waves come crashing into them and you just look at them and think they're gonna buckle, you know? They'll fall over, but they just stand there and take it. And, and you look at them and realize they're not doing anything. They're just sitting there, not moving, nothing. They just stand there in solitude. And as you look at them, they're, they're like leveraging every fiber of their existence just to be still and quiet in the midst of the storm. Not to, to move, not to conquer, just to stand. And then because they stand, they can actually light the way for others. And the lighthouse is, is literally able to save lives, shape the future, because it's strong, because it's immovable. Often there's a community around the lighthouse caring for it, and even sometimes a community of lighthouses protecting a whole coastline, right? Now, I really think this is what the practices of solitude and community are meant to do for us. They're meant to make us less like windmills and more like lighthouses. And, and this image kind of, I think, even connects us back to the very beginning of where we started this morning, just a few minutes ago. And, and the human vocation, which is to be God's image-bearing creatures and to steward the earth toward peace, toward shalom. To be a beacon in the storm that guides each other within the community and even the wider world toward peace. And this only happens, you guys, if we find a deep connection, a reconnection between the self and God, the self and each other, the self and the self, maybe the scariest reconnection of them all, and even the way we relate to creation. And it's tough because the soul is like a wild animal. It, it needs silence to emerge. It needs solitude. And the soul needs a witness. It needs a community. And we need concrete practices, habits, rhythms of both solitude and community. Um, we really want everyone at Redemption to have this, to have especially um, to facilitate some kind of community that everybody would have somebody they, they can talk to. And if you're longing for community like that and you do not have it in your life, then we would like to help you move in that direction. Um, and there, there are a bunch of different ways you can do it. I mean, the easiest way is you come early, hang out and talk to people, stay late, hang out and talk to people. Um, we have a ton of ministry teams you can serve on and get to know some people that way. There are two ways in particular uh, um, that kind of rise to the top of how we do this. One is you can join a community group. We have a bunch of groups that have some openings. So if you're interested in that, um, we also do something called triads, which is kind of this ad hoc idea. Sometimes small groups are hard to, it's hard to find leaders and it's hard to get people to, to do them. And so triads are just groups of three, obviously, um, where um, usually we do men with men, women with women, and um, they just meet on their, on their own without you know, any guidance or anything. And because it's a smaller group, it's sometimes easier to talk and also easier just the logistics of it. 
Um, so if you're interested in a triad, um, you can, or in a community group, or in serving, or anything like that, especially in the group stuff, you can go to the website, and I think it's under the, uh, I wrote it down, the be it's the being together section, and it will drop down. It's a place you can go and register and say, I'd like a triad, I'd like to try a community group, something like that. Um, and uh, this is the kind of relationship that we hope will fit us for solitude, too. And it, these two things will work together. Let's pray. As we just draw to mind this, the image of the lighthouse there. Think about what Henry Nouwen said about loneliness. What Annie Dillard said about the stars. Oh God, we do, we want to know who you are and who we are. And we do want our lives to find some kind of connection to you, to each other, to ourselves, and to this world that you've made for us to live in and to, to love and, and be loved within. And we're just a little rinky-dink church, but we really want this to happen here. And so I pray that, you know, here at the end of these five weeks, talking about practices, that um, we would just, you know, slowly and very patiently with each other and ourselves begin to arrange our lives so that we can come fully alive and be part of your redemption of all things, your making all things new through Christ. We just hold this desire before you, God, and ask you to bless it. Amen. Will you stand, please? And we're going to receive communion now. The way we do communion at Redemption is we just, um, the ushers release us row by row, and we do what's called intinction. So you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup, and you just take a, a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and then receive it. And they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer, um, I will remember, or however you feel comfortable answering. Um, the reason that we do this is, is that on the night he was betrayed, Christ gathered all his, his people, and he made them eat from the same loaf of bread and drink from the same cup. And, and then he said, symbolically, we're doing something here. That, that this, this bread is like my body, and this cup is like my life. And he said, after I'm gone... Every time you gather, eat this bread, drink this cup. Like, in a sense, take my life into your life and be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And um, he said, every time you gather, do this. And so that's why, that's why we do communion at the end of our services. It's kind of at the pinnacle of what we do together. It's this way of receiving Christ into our lives. And um, this is also why we don't put limits on it. Anybody who wants to... Join us at the table. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ is, is worthy. And, um, but before we do this, will you pray with me? And let's, let's bless the elements. 
Oh God, we do ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?